Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life. Uh, I see a little spring in the air in Washington, but of course that'll get squashed here in a few days with some more snow. But I really am very excited that it's almost spring here on the East Coast. Uh, today, we, uh, today's program is called The Art of Museum Exhibitions. Now, those of you who listened last week to my interview with Polly McKenna-Cress, uh, we talked about how to create museum exhibits. And today, um, it's actually sort of the companion piece. We're going to be looking at more of the why. You know, in thinking about this uh, show today, I think it's certainly true we talk about there's an art to developing museum exhibits, but some of us aren't quite sure whether museums or exhibits are, are art forms in and of themselves. And I was thinking about it, you know, if you got five exhibit developers together and you ask them to define what an exhibition was and why we do them, you'd probably get six different answers. Uh, so today to help us sort sort of uh, sort through this conundrum is my very good friend and colleague, Leslie Bedford, who has been thinking about this issue for quite some time. In fact, uh, at one time, she was even called an artist uh, for her exhibition work at Boston Children's Museum. Now, for those of you, uh, Leslie's going to talk a little bit more about her career trajectory and what, uh, what key elements sort of brought her to this place and to this thinking. But I'm sure many of you are familiar with Leslie and her work at Boston Children's Museum, Brooklyn Historical Society. She's also been a senior consultant with the museum group for over 12 years and also the director of the Leadership in Museum Education program at Bank Street College. Uh, she is a graduate of Vassar College and Harvard Graduate School of Education. She attended the Getty Leadership Institute with me, in fact, and uh, also recently received her Ph.D. in Museum Studies from Union Institute and University. And today we are also going to be talking uh, much about her upcoming book that will be published in May uh, by Left Coast Press, entitled The Art of Museum Exhibitions, How Stories and imagination create aesthetic experiences. Welcome, Leslie. I'm so glad you're on our show today. Oh, you're so welcome, Carol. I'm delighted to be here, and I've never heard such a cogent uh, analysis of my career path. I'll have to copy that. It was great. Thank you very much. Well, I'm very used to taking uh, very, very long and involved things and putting them in 50-word labels. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> Leslie, uh, just to help uh, ground our listeners a little bit in what is going to be a very stimulating discussion, could you just share with us a little bit about your museum uh, career uh, trajectory and, more importantly, what has sort of brought, what are some of the key, 
key aha moments or key things that have, that I, that brought you to thinking about exhibits as art forms? Well, like many people in the field, I began as a school teacher. I was a high school teacher for several years in Boston. And then I married this guy who was interested in Japan. And we went there for a year, and I felt like my brain just exploded with new ways of thinking about the world. So when I came back, I, I began to teach about Japan. One could be an expert pretty easily in those days. And that led uh, by pure luck to a job with the Boston Children's Museum, which had had for many, many years a strong Japan program. Thanks to their sister city relationship with the city of Kyoto, they had built within their big old former warehouse in Boston's uh, Fort Point Channel area and an authentic two-story Japanese house from Kyoto. And I ended up eventually being put in charge of that program and its collection and its teaching and so forth. So I spent 13 very productive years at the Children's Museum, and I've often thought about this, particularly because I was teaching mid, early and mid-career people myself, how blessed I was to, to learn the field in an institution which took the education of its staff as seriously as they took the education and interaction with their visitors. And there was a very deliberate, carefully thought out process for helping us understand the work that we were doing. And I remember, even today, the process I went through of, of realizing that I was no longer teaching in a classroom, that I was teaching in a museum, and that while there were similarities, there were tremendously important differences. And so I spent the rest, the, the next many, many years seeking to understand those differences and what was the nature of the visitor experience and what was it that we as professionals could do to make that experience more meaningful for people. Leslie, in, in the book uh, that you've just written, which uh, I will say is is uh, based uh I, I feel significantly on on your uh, your doctoral dissertation, which is uh, uh, just blew me away. And you know, you don't you don't usually hear somebody say, "Wow, your doctoral dissertation!" Just I couldn't put it down. <laughs> uh, you know, certainly no one has ever said that about mine. So uh, so so congratulations. But one of the things that I think that you have really brought to to our field and our craft is a new vocabulary um, for talking about exhibits. And, of course, as, as my listeners know, to me, vocabulary is simply a, a way of identifying that we're thinking about things in a different way, and we have some, some words to, to acknowledge that. Um, so, Leslie, uh, you know, we always talk about exhibits as being educational. Um, you know, that's been drummed into us right. uh, from the beginning. What, what's the vocabulary that you're using you know, that's sort of shift, helping us broaden that, that uh, uh, perspective? Thanks for asking. Um, I mean, the first thing I want to say is I'm a, like John Dewey and a lot of other people, I'm a both and kind of a person, not an either or. So it's not that, edu that exhibitions are not about learning. Of course they are. It's that I think what happened with me was that I began to get more and more nervous about just stopping it there. I've, uh, lots of things are happening in our field. It's been a very rich 
20 or 30 years of of sort of growing up, of, of maturing and the thinking about what museums are about. And I think I felt on the one hand that we had gotten caught in a very narrow definition of education, which was greatly influenced by what was happening in the school reform movement and the core standards and the, the focus on quantitative research and you know proving that people were learning X, Y, and Z that we had laid out for them, which I really distrust. And at the same time, ironically, the definition of education or learning had gotten so broad, so vague, as terms like constructivism came in or meaning-making that it just started to cease to mean much for me. And so I went, I, so I wanted to see if there was another set of words I could use. And you, you referenced that, ex, that thing that happened to me in Boston when I had spent five years doing an exhibition that was enormously fun and creative on contemporary youth culture in Japan in the 80s and 90s. And at, at my goodbye party, this lovely man, who I'm actually now trying to track down because I think he needs to know what an influence he had, said that the museum was losing an artist. And I sort of looked around the room wondering who he was talking about, since it certainly was never a term I would have used to reference myself. But what it eventually led me to think about partly through the work that Bank Street was doing with the Lincoln Center Institute and all sorts of other things, was the notion that maybe exhibitions really are a form of art, like the visual arts and the performing arts. There's some that seems to me they have more in, in common with, like, theater, and that we shouldn't be so nervous about talking about them that way. I think what's happened in the field... And I, I applaud the direction, the sort of visitor center, civic society commitment to the good of the public has meant that we were very quick to dismiss uh, an earlier paradigm, which was to think about the aesthetic experience because we saw it as elitist, you know, inherently elitist. And I wanted to find some way to sort of join the concern with the public, which I have sort of tr drilled into my bones from my background, and this this belief that really what happens in exhibitions, if they're created in a way that's imaginative and artistic, is that people have an experience which is different than straight education. And so the words that I found myself using over and over were story, or narrative, and imagination, which is sort of a, a cliche in a way, except that it's not. You know, we don't, we haven't really thought about that very much. And finally, aesthetic experience. And so my book is an attempt to use those three terms as what I call the tent poles of my theory. And I think a lot of what I say is very familiar to many people, the, the colleagues that you and I have, and people like Polly and Janet came in and so forth. But it's it's perhaps just a twist, a, a, a different lens to use for looking at the exhibition experience. You know what? I, I, I agree with you completely, um, uh, Leslie. I, I, 
I think that this is, yeah, I think we've all been a little concerned uh, with, as, as museums, uh, we tend to be reactive and we tend to protest a little bit too much and, and, and uh, try to identify our, our worth um, using other people's vocabularies. Yes, absolutely. One of the things we do, and, and we did this for a long, long time, uh, particularly in my little corner of the world, natural history museums and science centers, is we said we were educational institutions and therefore we were supporting schools. And if you yes. value schools, therefore you'll value yes. us. And, and what I think you have done with this, identifying this new vocabulary of saying we are an aesthetic experience, uh, we, we are a, a place of narrative or story and imagination is to say in our own rights, we are a thing in, in and of itself that is valuable or can right be of value. Carol, that, I mean, I, yes. And I think there are people, um, it's so interesting because the field really has several sub-segments, right, several sectors. And I think those of us who come from education and or museums like science centers or children's museums or some natural history museums are more comfortable with some kind of vocabulary than, at least until recently, people who came probably from art museums Although, as I say in my book, the most interesting work that's really going on now, I think, is going on in art museums. But anyway, there, there's this new sort of stance that says, listen, what we do is, what we do is very valuable work and we should stop apologizing for it and tr stop trying to masquerade it in terms that other sectors use. So I'm just repeating what you just said. And I wish I could think of the name of the article. It's by a British woman, and it was in Gail Anderson's latest edition of edited articles. Sandra somebody, she's at the Tate in London, and she wrote a terrific piece about cultural learning that sort of says, get rid of the vocabulary that belongs with schools. That's not ours. Ben Garcia has also written a very good piece about that. So... No, I, I, I couldn't agree more, uh, Leslie. Uh, this is very, very exciting, and I think why your book uh, is so very, very timely. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking more with Leslie Bedford, uh, looking at her new model and uh, new vocabulary for thinking about exhibitions. I can guarantee all of you that at the end of this program, you are never going to think about exhibitions in the same way. Now, I hope that you continue uh, to uh, listen to Museum Life uh, every week, as well as contact me at carolbossertservices.com to listen to this and any other programs. You can always drop me a line at carol.bossert at verizon.net uh, to tell me uh, what you like and what you don't like about the show and, and what uh, topics of, and issues you would like to be listening to on Museum Life. So we will be back in just a minute. Thank you. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Carla Howell, Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. I'm here with Leslie Bedford, and we're talking about exhibitions as an art form. And during the break, uh, Leslie and I just kept on talking uh, because we got so excited. And so now we're going to try try to recreate some of the points that we were making during during the break because I I, I do think that this is this is important. Uh, Leslie, you and I were talking uh, that we really we both feel, and we've been in the field uh, for a couple of years now and seen several, <laughs> several, I say that kindly, um, we've, we've seen a couple of cycles go through, you know, the booms and the busts and the, you know, sort of the, the apologizing and trying to figure out, you know, where museums fit. And you and I both feel that we are on a precipice of finally sort of coming into our own and uh, stopping to stopping um, apologizing for being anything other than what we are and, and, and what we can can offer. But of course, that is not necessarily universally held. Um, you were talking about um, some of the work um, and thoughts of George Hine, who has been in this field also quite a while. Do you want to sort of share some of those ideas yeah, and concerns? You, you've raised a whole bunch of things that are on my mind. Uh, the comment I made about George Hine, who is one of the most important um, thinkers in our field and also, I must say, a close friend and a member of my doctoral committee, He said to me one time when we were talking about what to call what happens in the museum experience, and his book was called Learning in the Museum, but he said if you get away from the term education, you're in danger of sort of separating your work out from the wider civil society um, 
which understands education and funds education, which is very important, and won't understand this other way of talking about the learning experience. And I, you know, I thought there was some validity to that, but I guess I think also, and I'm no, I was a teacher for many years, but it's been a long time since I paid much attention to that. I do have the feeling, or at least I do here in New York City, that we're, there we're creakily moving away from the very strong focus on standards and quantitative methodology of the past several years. So maybe, maybe there's these just sort of changes in the cultural zeitgeist that happen, you know, and so perhaps it may be that the kinds of thinking that we do in museums and we, and that we believe really is that at the nature of who we are will become more accepted and understood by the society at large. I don't know. Well, but- I yeah, I tend I tend to uh, to agree with you. Maybe I'm you know just a Pollyanna optimist, but yeah. certainly in you know here in Washington, uh, you know you get some vibes with the Department of Education, and and in my own state of Maryland, I think that that there there is a greater understanding that that while it still may be all we're all under the big tent of you know helping people learn and think. And be better equipped to deal with the with the society that they find themselves in, whether it's getting a job or just understanding the world around them. Uh, we're we are we're really sort of reconsidering the standards because those are so fact based. Yeah, and the right. skills that we need for a twenty first century uh, uh, productivity have to do with things like collaboration, transformation, curiosity, and those are topics that have been difficult for schools to really grapple with because you know they they've been in this this very tight framework and museums. Because we've been on on the periphery, are 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 can be a little more fleet of foot, yeah. and taught you know uh, focus on some of these skills uh, a little little bit more. I would hope so. I may be Pollyanna as well. I want to pick up on something that you started with, which I was struck by. It's language I use all the time in my teaching when you talked about focusing on the why and. Um, one of the things I've noticed over the years is that museum people are not so comfortable. I'm, this is probably human nature, spending the time to understand the why. They want to move very quickly to the how and the what because it's easier partly, but also because I think until really quite recently, there hasn't been a lot of work done in the why. This is really, museum studies is really a new field. If you think about the fields of if you think about the subfields of, of visitor studies and evaluation, um, those didn't exist before what maybe the 1970s, except in a behaviorist kind of way. But the work of people like George Hine or Lois Silverman or Lisa Roberts or John Falk and Lynn Deerking, I mean, that's been revolutionary in terms of helping us understand the nature of the museum experience and giving us a set of usable whys so that we can actually be very reflective practitioners and and think about what the point is of what we're doing, you know, and how we can evaluate it in in big idea terms. And I'm, I'm a big proponent of that. 
And can I throw one more thing out? You see, you're, you're letting loose the teacher in me. I think this is great. Go ahead. All right. The other piece about the why, and, and I think the thing that really probably provoked me on some important level, and it came from reading Lisa Roberts' book, From Knowledge to Narrative, which is a fabulous book, is she's teaching us about postmodernism, about the, the way of thinking about the world that says it depends. One's point of view on things really depends on who you are and how you were raised and what gender you are and blah, 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 on and on and on, that we eat that personal interpretation is a very subjective process and it's what we're engaged in all the time. It's not unlike the meaning-making way of thinking about things. And as soon as you buy that, as soon as you say, gosh, I guess people are coming here and they're each in their own little way making sense of what they see, you realize that we don't have a whole lot of control over it, that they're really not, some are, people like my husband, for example, but most people are not coming into their into museums with a notebook and saying, okay, now what is it they're teaching? Right, I get that, I get that, I, it just doesn't work that way. Classrooms maybe, museums not. So I think once you begin to reflect on the, the consequences of understanding the museum experience that way, you have to come up with a new way of thinking about exhibit, ex- exhibition making that reflects what people are doing. Do you know what I mean? I do exactly, and, and uh, this is where I, I have been using the term uh, placemaking. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. E- exhibitions make a place in, uh, to, to then have whatever happened happened uh and i think that it is the the term that i've that i've been coming to as well when we say you know you can get the information off the internet you can mm-hmm. get the information I mean, you know we are awash in information uh but there is a dearth of places where yeah. we can where we can go to settle ourselves and 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 it's not and when i say settle ourselves it's not always contemplation you know that's really only one way you know it's one learning style uh but to say there there are pauses to say all right all of this information is swirling around me how do i make sense of it how do i make meaning and so we've got these place making experiences I think placemaking, which is a very interesting phrase, um, may relate to something that I've thought about some and that I wrote about, which is somatic understanding. Somatic understanding is a term from a, an educator, writer, scholar named Kieran Egan, whose work I've been intrigued by for, I don't know, some period of time now. It was also part of my doctoral work, and he writes about how imagination works. And he says that at the most basic level, it works with our our bodies, the the toolkit of skills that come from having a body. And we learn, and this doesn't end when you grow up, it's foundational to human beings. We learn through our senses, all of our senses, the sense of touch and sight and smell and taste and everything else. And I think the physicality of the world is really critical to uh, being human. And so I, I'm, 
I sort of muse on periodically. What does that mean if everything is now electronic? Like, I watch my my five-month-old grandson who is riveted the minute the computer goes on or the iPhone or the iPad, his attention is immediately turned to that. And I know by the time he's probably six, he'll be extremely adept at that kind of experience. And I don't know, I know you gain from that. What I don't know is what difference does it make to us as a species over time if we're not handling paper, for example. Do you know what I mean? Or holding a pen or something. This isn't the same as placemaking, but I think it relates because the question is, what is what happens to people if they don't have a physical sense of where they are in their body? Yes, uh, you know that that is fascinating, and and uh, you are awakening my uh, my teacher experiences as an environmental educator. Uh-huh. Uh, you know the class. Room. The woods were our classroom, and uh, a lot of what I did uh, when I would bring uh, – I, I was very young in those days and probably a little naive and didn't have children of my own at the time, so I had six-year-olds, and we would troop them out into the woods, and, and actually, if I had took 15 out and I got 15 back, it was considered a very successful experience. <laughs> uh, but a lot of what I had to do uh, with these – I worked with gifted and talented kids uh, who spent spent most of their lives in their heads, at, yes. even at six. Yes. And to get them outside uh, was, was and to make them feel comfortable. And I never really thought about it uh, as, as an educational experience, but just getting comfortable with having their little bodies outside yes. in cold grass or sticky mud or, or whatever it is. So I, I, I do think that, that you're on to something. And I think as a society, we're... We're grappling with that as well. I mean, I was I was uh, reading the newspaper today, and Michelle Obama was uh, uh, celebrating four years of her Get Up and Move program, you know, fighting childhood obesity, which yeah. I think is really, really important um, from the physical nature and identifying a, a, a very physical concern that we have in, in our society and our culture of overweight children. But I think that there are going to be some very positive unintended consequences of getting kids and people to move out in the world instead of just becoming uh, seeing the world through through the lens of this uh, of, of a screen and it's right. it's very very interesting of uh, we're having to teach teach new skills yes that's exactly right and the, to take this back to the topic at hand which is um, exhibitions as an art form, that's a piece of my book. I write about what, how to provide, how to, how to think about the need for and the power of these somatic or sensory experiences for people. Here's, here's something I picked up, and you're, you're a scientist, and I most definitely am not, so I'm not sure I've got this right. But there's research that shows that the part of the brain that lights up when, uh, for example, you touch something that's got a very distinctive sensory service, a surface like velvet or something, that same part of the brain lights up when you read the word velvety glove 
or the part of the brain that lights up when you smell, say, cinnamon, also lights up if you read cinnamon. So that there's a way of thinking about language in a more sensory and sort of, um, what's the word I want here, sort of inclusive, broader way. And I found that so interesting when we think about exhibition, creating experiences for in exhibitions, but also doing what you spend a lot of your time doing, which is writing text and how to make text, since one is standing there reading, how to make the experience of reading text more somatic, more embodied. I think we're going to learn a lot more about this over the next few years because all the sort of cognitive research, neuroscience stuff is just booming. And there are a number of people in our field, some of whom were my students, who are getting uh, PhDs in the field of cognitive studies, and they're going to translate that into the museum experience. So we may have to revisit placemaking in another 10 years and see, you know, what it really means in terms of how the brain works. Yeah, I could not agree with you more, uh, Leslie, that all of the brain studies are uh, just uh, amazing. And I, it's not my area of expertise uh, particularly e- either, but it is truly, I think, uh, going to revolutionize the way we, uh, we think about exhibitions yeah. and think about you know, where we are in the world. But you bring up a, another really good point. And, uh, and it gets back to what we're talking about with, with not apologizing about what exhibitions are. Uh, you know, there was, there was a time that I would go into, um, a, a project, uh, possibly with a, with a new client, uh, making a, a creating a new museum or a new uh, visitor center. And the first thing they would say to me was, well, we don't want this to be a museum. Yeah, and you know, so as if and as if museum was a was a dirty word, uh, thinking that it was you know just case upon case of objects and and little tiny labels and and yeah. certainly you know we've gotten much better at our craft yeah. of you know how we present things and and being a little more thoughtful about doing some some advanced organizing and and uh, really have you know great pioneers like Judy Rand and and yeah. uh, others who who have uh, uh, who've who've made the exhibit experience a little more accessible for people but again it's this idea let's not apologize for what these places are mm-hmm. i wonder you know i was speaking with a former student who was sort of examining her career choices and wondering whether she might move in a new direction and she was saying that she she was concerned that her institution was no longer so invested in exhibitions that they were much more interested in program and education. And I recalled a short piece by Nina Simon in her Museum 2.0 blog. I think that's where I read it about, she was sort of saying, really, do we need exhibitions anymore? Why don't we just have events and programs of the sort that she seems to be doing out in um, California? So I'm, you know, I, I think this speaks to the place where we were starting to go, I think, which was what about online exhibitions and digital experiences rather than those that are place-based, that are in a particular place. So it, it may be, Carol, that if we don't learn how to be uh, more fleet of foot, as you said, more willing to try new ideas, that we will, in fact, 
become an um, old-fashioned art form that doesn't show up so much anymore. We'll become the opera. Yeah, we'll become, exactly, we'll become the opera. And you know what happened to New York City Opera went right out of business. So I, I find it, when there are people out there who are trying out really cool new stuff and pushing the envelope, as they say, I say, you know, more power to you. Um, I'm not doing that anymore, but I really, <laughs> I like to, to know that, that others, you, I don't know if you, if Kathy McLean has been on your show or will be, but she has a lot to say about how pokey the field is and how badly we need to be willing to try new, new ideas. And I think it's true. And on that perky note, uh, we're gonna, <laughs> we're, we're, no, we're gonna, we're going to take a break because this is a, is a good moment to, to pause. Uh, when we come back, Leslie and I are going to continue our conversation about, uh, uh, her, back on her book and, uh, particularly on a topic that I found very interesting and that is the issue of subjective mood and how looking at subjective mood and understanding subjective mood, which is something we don't really have, uh, in American culture can help us, I think, in, uh, embrace the why of, of exhibition development in, uh, in, at least for me, it was in a new, new way. So we will be back in a moment. I want to remind you that you can listen to this show as well as others on my website, carolbossertservices.com you can also download this uh, for uh, for later uh, on the Voice America website you can always reach me to tell me what's uh, what's on your mind and what you'd like to talk about at carol.bossert at verizon.net and I want to remind all of you mark your calendars May 2014 the month of AAM uh, for the publication by on from Left Coast Press of Leslie's book The Art of Museum exhibition how story and imagination create aesthetic experiences and we will be back in a minute streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com do the adventures of indiana jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Very rarely does our news media spotlight some of the good things that are happening in our world. For more of these good stories and the people that are creating them, tune in to Bread for the Journey with Mariana Cacciatore. Whether these good acts stem from personal tragedy or just a desire to help out and make this a better world in which to live, you'll find inspiration in every week's program. Connect with those that are doing something great for a change. Listen for Bread for the Journey, Saturdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bosser. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bosser at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Thank you. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossard. I'm here with Leslie Bedford today, and we've been having a riotous, free-flowing discussion, and it's pretty much been around the concept of art, of the art of museum exhibitions, although we've we've, uh, talked about education and solved some of the other major problems of the world. but Leslie, during the break, you uh, you you had a couple of very interesting comments, and you said you had a quote that you felt was uh, was a good good way of of uh, sort of positioning us uh, uh, as we finish up our conversation today. So, would you like to share that? I would. I don't know. We'll see where it goes. Uh, you said we we could talk about the subjunctive mood, and I really want to do that. In fact, I might start with that. That phrase is one I've used. Far too many times. It was the title of my thesis. It was the title of a short piece and curator working in this. It's a title of talks I've given. I'm sure everybody's had it. Um, but it came, I thought I'd made it up. I thought this is a very cool phrase and I made it up and I didn't make it up actually. I discovered to my chagrin that Jerome Bruner and a whole bunch of other people used it. It came to mind because I was studying Spanish. I'm still, I'll study Spanish till I die, I suspect. And Spanish involves the use of the subjunctive mood. The what if I were a carpenter and you were a lady, would you marry, you know, if, if the, the moon were made of blue cheese. And we haven't used the subjunctive in English really in a very long time. But it's, it's hard to learn, but it's interesting. And what it does is it speaks to how the imagination works. Because the imagination is the capacity for thinking of something that may not actually be right in front of you or isn't. It's of the po- something that's possible, right? It's, it's the incredibly human ability to think of things as being different than they are. And we wouldn't be any place if we didn't have an imagination. And I, as far as I know, we are the only species with imaginations. And imagination is what has allowed us to do many wondrous things and many horrible things over the decades. So here's my quote. It comes from a, a English a literature critic. Actually, I think he was Canadian who wrote in the 1950s. His name is Northrop Fry. And he said, the poet's job is not to tell you what happened, but what happens. Not what did take place, but the kind of thing that always takes place. He gives you the typical, recurring, or what Aristotle calls a universal event. You wouldn't go to Macbeth to learn about the history of Scotland. You go to it to learn what a man feels like after he's gained a kingdom and lost his soul. And I have found that a very moving and very useful way of thinking because I think, and that's what gets me into thinking about exhibitions as an art form, like the theater. I don't think everybody goes to exhibitions to learn the history of whatever. I think they go looking for meaning, looking to put their imaginations to work, and looking for some sense of connection to the the nature of being human. And that's what I think 
exhibitions are better at delivering than straight facts. And so that's that's been kind of the thing that's been driving me and that I've been looking for when I go and visit places. And actually, it came out of some personal experiences with exhibitions that I felt had that quality over the years. And I don't find as many as I'd like to, but it, for me, it's it's sort of the the measuring stick for what we could be if we want to think of ourselves both as educational and also as aesthetic. So that's my quote. Well, that that's that's an amazing uh, quote. Isn't that um, cool? It's 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 so cool, and it uh, it does elevate. Um, uh, elevate the the exhibition process yes. uh, and 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 the craft uh, that that many of us are involved in in a in a new way and I I, th- I will want to get that from you and and uh, plaster it all over my office <laughs> I I think uh, and I don't want to get us off topic but I think one of the uh, challenges that many of us have in the field. Uh, is and maybe that's why we're not seeing as many you know really great exhibitions as we used to is that they're they're fraught with fear there's a there's a high amount of of risk uh in in mounting exhibitions i i don't think there should be but there is and many of them take years uh and i i'm i yes and how do you how, how do you sustain that that why that passion that that commitment to the art form if you will when you know like for those of us who are down in the trenches day in and day out and the and the end doesn't seem you know, to be coming any closer well you're you're touching on so many things as you know i mean i'm i'm this is a doctoral dissertation, and it has a certain way of living its pie in the sky, right? Because initially, when I went back to school, I went to a, a non-traditional program that was started in the 1960s by a group of college presidents who thought that adults, and in my case, considerably older adults, should be able to get terminal degrees without jumping through so many hoops, and so they created a program that was going to draw on the adult students' professional experiences, which was a wonderful way to go to school. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to do an exhibition and write about it, which is what a colleague of mine from the Boston Children's Museum actually did. She created an exhibit and then wrote a very scholarly um, essay about it for her PhD from Union. But you can't just create an exhibition out in your backyard. That's the problem. You need an institutional setting, and you need all sorts of people on your team, and you need money, and you need leadership. You need to be someplace where the leadership can think outside the usual boxes and is more less not so risk-averse and has faith in their staff or the people that they hire and isn't trapped in this, what I think is really a 19th century way of thinking about the, the format, which is tremendously scholarly and about transferring knowledge from the curator's head to the visitor head. And that's the model that has kept us, I think, from doing the kind of interesting work that we might do. 
However, if you are lucky enough, and I have been a few times, and I, and I know you have also, in a place that has those other qualities and is willing to let you just take off, then I think if you're passionate about the subject and, and once you get going into something, it's hard not to care about it, then I don't, it, it wasn't a problem for, I mean, I say that, and I'm thinking back to an exhibit I did called Choosing to Participate, which I did not for a museum, but for an educational organization. It was a real slog. It was really, really, really hard. Uh, they didn't, they weren't used to thinking about exhibitions, although they were very supportive. And there were times when I just felt like, you know, I'm going to hurl myself off the whatever. So I do, I do know what you're talking about, but I also suspect you agree with me that at the end of the day, being allowed to work on the, this medium in a way that fits with your values and your beliefs is, I can't think of anything more satisfying or exciting. No, you, you, you're, you're absolutely right. And I, I think that, um, in a way, having, having Polly on the show last week and having you on the show this week, uh, uh, and, and maybe I'll bring you both back because I think that you're the, you're the two bookends. It is the, you know, Polly and Janet wrote a book that many of us, you know, Janet taught many of us how, how to do yes. this, but it's the how. It's, yes. you know, you, you know, here, here, there is a process. There are some pitfalls. Here's how you do it together. Uh, it is, and yours is really the why, why, why we do this. Um, there are unique aspects to exhibition development. Uh, you know, I, 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 we should not say that when you say uh, exhibition is an art form, you're not, and you say this in, in your book, it's not art with the high, with the big capital A, no. but it is an art form. And by thinking of it in an art form as opposed to just uh, a communication yeah. uh, uh tool you know email is a communication tool and we know how passionate that is so this is this is really <laughs> this is this is something different and by thinking about it that that way it gets us out of these either or conversations if i have i think the phrase has finally been put to rest although i hear it once in a while and that is are we doing education or are we doing edutainment and uh. You know, if based on this conversation and your framework, edutainment isn't well. It's not a word, and there it has no place. It doesn't yeah. get us anywhere. No, it doesn't get us anywhere. Yeah, I agree. You know, Polly and Janet's book is terrific, and I have a little piece in there about storytelling, which is one of the the pillars or the tent poles of my theory, um, and. Ironically or not coincidentally, that the model that they talk about, their advocacies, is the very one that I was trained in. So I'm supporting what you say. I think you need some big whys, and then you need a really solid how, and they need to work together. And so, yes, everybody should buy both books. <laughs> We have just a few, few, uh, three minutes left, actually. Uh, okay. But um, you also wanted to make a point that uh, uh, exhibits that are at a place or in a place are, are you know, really can follow some of the same rules as uh, exhibitions that are maybe online or in a virtual world. And I want to give you a chance to say that. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know a lot about, I, in fact, I would say I know really nothing about online exhibitions. Um, and I, I watch the work that's being done by a new generation of people with awe and and fascination because they're using a vocabulary, not to mention tools that are not mine to use. But I think there was a point that was made in a blog by Seb Chan, who is one of this new generation and does some very, very interesting work with uh, media, digital media, that, for example, storytelling is so foundational to human beings. And whether you're doing it in a theater or an exhibition or digitally, the same rules apply. it, it needs to speak to people on an emotional level. It needs to enable them to use their own imaginations. Story generates story. And so I, my guess, but I don't know, but my guess is that as long as these, the fundamental things that make people who they are and that we, we will keep learning more and more about through, for example, brain research, those are the, those are the building blocks. And it doesn't matter where they're used, whether it's in a place or it's on a screen. The building blocks are still the same thing. At least that's my assumption for now. I think you're probably right. I'm I'm uh, very encouraged by um, uh, programs that are bringing um, uh, software developers and people who really understand this new these new media into contact and conversation and creativity with uh, those of us who, who have been thinking about things in a, you know, in a, in a, in a more place-based physical way. Uh, I think that there's a lot of potential for collaboration, and I'm hoping uh, and encouraged uh, when I see more collaboration. It, again, it gets back to what Janet and Polly were saying, that this art form of exhibition really takes uh, a number of people, a number yes. of advocacies. Yes. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's not just the art form of, uh, of one person uh, creating in, in his uh, Paris or her Paris garret. Yes. Uh, and, and so we need to sort of get over ourselves on that. Yes. Leslie, it has been a complete pleasure to talk with you. See, we could talk for a whole nother hour. Yes, and maybe you're, you're right. I'm amazed. It's <laughs> And I and I, I hope to bring you back. Uh, but before we close, I want to remind everyone: mark your calendar. This is a great book. Uh, it is. Uh, it will change your life. It will change your practice. Uh, May 2014. Mark your calendars. Left Coast Press: The Art of Museum Exhibition: How Story and Imagination Create Aesthetic Experiences by Dr. Leslie Bedford, uh, and my dear friend. Again, you've been listening to Museum Life. Uh, this is. Carol Bossert. You can always reach me at carolbossertservices.com, carol.bossert at verizon.net. Let's keep the conversation going, and uh, I'll be back next week with another great conversation. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.